Well, good morning. As uh, you notice, some lights came on mid-service. It was an example of Pentecost when the, um, <laughs> the flashing lights over the heads of the apostles in that room, I think it was just they had new lights that turned on and they were deeply confused. No, uh, before I talk about our, our message today, I just want to take a moment and um, actually I want to dismiss preteens. Yes? No? Yes. Michelle? Am I? D- no? She says she's okay. I don't have to do that. Actually, but what I do want to talk about for a minute is I just want to acknowledge that there are many, many volunteers who serve in our church and who make all of our ministries run. And I took a little inventory of our volunteers. I'm doubtless going to miss some people today. But we have people who serve on Sunday teams. They make coffee and set things up for us. We have ushers. We have people who pray for you. We have people who serve in our children's ministry week in and week out. We have people who serve on the worship teams. We have small group leaders. Dave has a whole network of people in his coffee time teams. We've got youth and young adults and preteens volunteers. And then we have other things, like we have our elders board, and we have people who help with ministries like Grief Share. And I took a quick tally. There's over 200 people in our church who volunteer in these different ministries, which is a really lovely and wonderful number. And so there's various ways to thank, but I do just want to publicly acknowledge how grateful we are as a church for your service. We can't do this stuff without you all. So thank you. If I've missed naming your ministry and your hurt, you can send me an email and I'll say it next week. Okay? So if I, I'm happy to mention those things. But I'm really grateful and truly grateful for all of you and the work you do. Now, the wonderful thing about service is that service and serving together is one of the ways that we do get to grow in our faith. And we do get to walk better in step with Jesus. And I don't, um, this is not a cattle call for volunteers. This is just an opportunity. I listed a bunch of things. Is there a place where you see yourself? Is there a place where you see, you know what, I've, I love that stuff. I'd love to be part of these things. Um, and then I just want to encourage you to pray and think about that, and uh, we'll talk more about these opportunities in the future. But grateful. All right, let's tune in now to uh, the word that we have for today. We're on a three-week mini-sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And last week, we talked about who the Spirit is. He's a person, right? And I listed a number of things he does, that he descends and then he indwells, and then he fills you, your whole life, and he seals you for the kingdom, and he empowers you for holy living and for kingdom service. These are the things that the Holy Spirit does within us. And this week, I'm going to talk about how to be filled with the Spirit. And I left last week with a question of, like, we've learned about the Spirit. How do we get the Spirit? And today, I'm going to talk just about how we get filled. And I believe that God wants to fill each and every one of us with his Holy Spirit. He wants to fill you up. He wants to fill you up to the top. He wants you to overflow. He wants you to be full of the good gift he has to give. Now, each of us receives the Holy Spirit when we believed. That's part of our faith. But um, there are fillings and refillings of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a good question I got last week after the sermon. Someone said, is Pentecost a one-time thing or does it happen again and again? It's a great question. The answer is, it happens again and again. We see the outpouring of the Spirit numerous times in the New Testament. It happens in different churches. We've seen the outpouring of the Spirit numerous times in church history, where he arrives in a group and starts doing things in a special way in them. And so the Holy Spirit's arrival is repeated. But there are some good reasons why it has to be repeated. I'll give you a couple of them. One good reason it has to be repeated is because we're sinners. We choose the things we want to do over God's life, and God's Spirit vacates the building for a while. He doesn't leave you completely. You're still sealed, but you're not filled anymore because you've poisoned the well. He doesn't want to be there. And that's part of it. Sometimes our sin is what chases the Holy Spirit out of our communities. 
Another thing, though, is that you're not made to lead. You're not made to hope. You're made to lead. Some of you think that you're cisterns of the Holy Spirit. You're actually watering cans. You're perforated. And God fills you up, and as you walk around, it just squirts out all over the place. You're made to leak, Holy Spirit. You're made to spread the Holy Spirit around in your life. And one of the things I think we don't like is that the Holy Spirit leaks, especially through the places where we're not particularly whole. I didn't mean the plan words there, but it's there. (laughs) It leaks out in our places of weakness, and God is glorified where we are not strong. And so the Holy Spirit comes into you, and he's going to work through you, and he's going to leak out of your wounds. And the willingness you have to be made whole by the Spirit is also the willingness you're going to have to leak by the Spirit, and then you need to get refilled. Hourly, daily, weekly, working to be refilled by the Holy Spirit. All this to say, I want to point out that life in the Holy Spirit is the normal Christian life. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is normal for the Christian life. It's not an extraordinary experience reserved for either the really holy or the really crazy, okay? That's not what it's about. It's normative. Being filled with the Spirit being, means being, knowing the difference between living a life by your power and living a life fully by God's power. That's the difference. It's going to be your strength or His strength, and the Spirit's going to make the difference. And the Spirit is not all about flashy phenomena and events and things happening. Stuff sometimes happens, but that's not the main thing. The Spirit comes to make us holy and fill us for mission with God. And actually, we're going to come to how that stuff works a bit more next week. Because phenomena happen, but they're not the main thing. Uh, We'll talk about the giver and the gifts. The gifts are good, but we really want the giver of the gifts. That's, That's our main target. And so being filled with God's Spirit is the life that we are made for, the life we're designed for. The fully armed and operational Christian is one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And if you haven't watched Star Wars in a while, you can go back later and check that out. So being filled with the Spirit is so good and so important. How do we get filled? How do we do it? Well, I'm going to give you three ways to get filled with the Holy Spirit today. Three ways to talk about this. Number one, we get filled by the Spirit when we ask. We get filled by the Spirit when we ask. This is lovely and straightforward and remarkably easy. Jesus has a direct teaching on this in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Let me read this for you now. This is right after the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel. And Jesus says to them, talking about prayer, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to see me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He's got to be outside the door, so he's shouting, right? And from inside, the friend answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. He's shouting back, so his kids are waking up anyway. But anyway, don't worry about this. (laughs) I tell you, Jesus says, even though the man will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of the other man's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Okay. So verse 9. So Jesus, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Now, it's a lovely parable. It's quite straightforward in some ways, but it's tied into some, um, some Middle Eastern backgrounds that help to make it more clear for us. Um, it runs on what's called a how-much-more logic. If X is true in these circumstances, how much more will Y be true in similar circumstances? Okay? And so if X is unthinkable here, how much more is it unthinkable in this place? And this is kind of how it trucks. Now, the friend is going to give freely because there's a reputation issue. Hospitality in the Middle Eastern world is a pretty big deal. It's not just my hospitality, it's the whole village's hospitality at stake. And so the friend is never under any circumstances going to refuse bread to a neighbor who's trying to host a guest. It's not thinkable. And the fact that he says no is insane. The audience is going, what kind of person is this that says no? And so they hear the result is if a person to honor the reputation of the village will of course give bread, how much more will God give to honor his reputation. God has a reputation to uphold here as a generous and good giver of gifts. You think he's going to be cheap with that reputation? So, bank on it. Bank on God's goodness. The second half of it is just pretty much reinforces the first. None of your kids comes to you and says, Dad, I would like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And you say, how about worms and scorpions? Okay, between bits of rock. Does that sound good? None of you does that. Immediately, you want to feed your kids. You understand how joyful it is when they get to eat good food. So if you know how to give food to your kids, doesn't God know how to give you what you need? How much more will he give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? And all you have to do is ask. And the ask is guaranteed a yes answer. That's one of the beautiful things about this. It's the one prayer God always says yes to. I would like more of you, God. He says yes, but as I like to say, you may not always like what happens next. Okay? Because he arrives and he does things. So this is a pretty straightforward interpretation. If you want the Spirit, you've got to ask. That's number one. Number two gets more complex. We get filled by the Spirit by removing blocks to the Spirit. We get filled by the Spirit by removing blocks to the Spirit. There are things in our lives that hinder the path of the Spirit uh, working into us. Uh, it's gardening season, and many of you are outside in your houses with garden hoses. And as you know well, if there's a kink or a bend in the hose, nothing's coming out the other end, or it's just a trickle. And if you want the water to come out the end of the hose, what do you have to do? You have to unkink the hose. And you know what? There's kinks in the hose of your heart that you have to unkink if God's Spirit is going to make His way. And I want to talk about three of these things for a moment right now. Three ways, perhaps, that we kink the hose of our heart. And so block number one is this. It's going to be full hands. Your hands are full. Very, very simply, God can't put anything in your hands because you're already carrying so much. You don't have room for anything else. Um, I find that actually the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, covers this for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in the Beatitudes, there's eight of them. This is the kind of entryway Beatitude. It sets the stage for everything that follows, sets the stage for Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is saying that there is something about poverty of spirit that is critical for beginning the life of faith. If you're going to go forward in the life of faith, you have to have something called poverty of spirit. And so what it means to be poor in spirit gets a little bit clearer when we think about, we contrast it with what it means to be rich. And wealth and being rich means measures of like self-sufficiency. You can control your own outcomes. 
Uh, you get to live alone. It's often in a mansion on your own space. You get to drive alone. You don't have to see other people if you don't want to. You can pay to solve any problem you have. By contrast, poverty doesn't have these benefits. The poor often live in social housing combined with other people. You have to travel on transit. You don't have your own wheels, right? And if you need help, if you run out of a situation you can't deal with, what do you have to do? You have to ask someone else's help to make things work. And I think these are some of the principles of being poor in spirit that we are asked to adopt as Christians because the more we rely on our power, to that same degree, God simply can't do things in your life. And so we have to become poor in spirit. And to put it quite bluntly, to the degree that your hands are full, to that same degree, Jesus can't fill them. And so trust in our power, our wealth, our moxie, our ability to get things done. These things can be real blocks to the filling of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of self-sufficiency works against the Spirit of God. And I think this is a particularly dangerous place for us in Vancouver. There's a lot of self-sufficiency in our region. And I want to propose to you that one of the reasons we don't see the Spirit moving in great ways is because, yeah, we've got it all sorted, thanks. Don't need you, God. So, it's in the air, it's in the water, we're breathing and taking it in. There's something we have to do to get past this. So block number one, full hands. Block number two, sin. Straight up sin. A kink in the hose that keeps the water from flowing into you. Uh, Let me talk about this in a couple different ways. So John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. I'll go ahead and read directly from John chapter 16. Verses 7 through 11. Um, This is the upper room discourse. Jesus is talking to his disciples about his departure and what's happening. Uh, And here are the things that he says to them. When you read from the Bible, you actually have to find the words in the Bible. Jesus says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you, can no, you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is a function of conviction. It's not making you feel bad. It's just making you aware of the places where your life is disordered. And not in good space. It's the light shining on the corner where all the little bugs are doing its stuff, right? And so he wants to bring you to a place of repentance, of awareness of our sin. Now, we see this direct thing in action in the passage we read last week, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. Peter preaches his sermon. The Holy Spirit's arrived. And what happens in response in the crowd who hears the sermon? It says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent each of you to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit's doing the work of conviction. The Spirit's already doing His work of making them want to repent, and now they respond with repentance. They're going to remove the sin that blocks them from receiving the life of God. The Spirit comes to convict us of sin. He shines a light on the ugly places of our hearts and presents us with a choice. We can repent, seek His help, and get clean, or we can try and cover up. We can close it up. We can block his work. If we resist his illuminating, blessing work, we kind of set ourselves up for trouble. 
Yeah, he's a house guest, a permanent house guest, moves up and fills all your spaces and starts doing stuff. And he has a vested interest in the cleaning of your inner life. He'll help you to do it, but he needs you to participate. And if we continually ignore his promptings about issues of sin, I think he stops speaking. He says, you're not interested in hearing my voice. I'm not going to speak in other ways. Sometimes there are couples who want to hear God's will for their life. They're like, I really know what God is doing, how to, what to go forward. But they've got so much sin in their relationship, there's no way they could possibly hear God's voice clearly. You're not listening to God's voice when he's saying you shouldn't be behaving this way. How do you expect to hear his voice in discerning your future? Uh, C.S. Lewis says this in his book, A Preface to Paradise Lost. He says, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. I think that's right. If the Spirit of God is convicting you about something and you ignore and ignore and ignore and ignore, you're going to become dull to hearing him. And then eventually be like, I don't hear God anymore. Well, there's a reason for that. You're not listening to God. A place for us to think. The Holy Spirit does his convicting work. And so we learn to listen and we obey. And the more we obey, the more we hear. And the more we hear, the more he speaks. And this is one of the ways we clear the way for us to be um, filled with the Holy Spirit. Third block, bitterness. Bitterness. A spirit of grumbling. Kind of grill your face. Okay. Grudge holding. Unforgiveness toward other people. Refusing to let things go. You are, I stand on my rights. Okay. All these things are of a piece, and this can chase the Spirit away. The Spirit of God is a spirit of joy, of illumination, of peace, of happiness, of what God is doing in our lives. And if the houses of our souls are filled with a spirit of bitterness, of toxic grumbling, then it makes it a toxic environment for the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to hang out there. There's another spirit in the house. I'm not going to double up on this one. I'm going to read in a minute um, Psalm 95 for us, but I think this gives us a picture of it. Um, And actually, sometimes with the Psalms, I think it's easier to explain them before reading the text. Sometimes I can read the text and explain with the Psalms. I should explain and then read the text because it's poetry. The message of the Psalm is pretty simple. The psalmist is inviting you to enter into God's rest. And he talks about the promised land, the Israelites who have been invited to enter into the rest that is the land. And they're invited to find peace and joy in the Lord who has saved them. And the way into that joy is through rejoicing, and the primary block to that joy is grumbling. If you want to rest, rejoice. If you want to be exiled, grumble. It's pretty straightforward. The key verse of the whole thing is verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. Don't calcify. Don't grumble. Don't harden when you're being given the opportunity to rejoice. So let me read the psalm for you now with that in mind. And this is the psalmist says this, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. It's just praise, joyful praise. And now here's the warning. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, and I will editorialize, if you would be filled with the Spirit, if you would receive the goodness that God has for you, do not harden your hearts. 
And now he pulls from the narrative of Israel. As at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. And for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Your refusal to rejoice at the right times has exiled you out of the presence of God. Okay? So, it's pretty straightforward again. If you want to rejoice in God, if you want God's rest, then resist the spirit of bitterness. Welcome the spirit of joy. Sing about, rejoice in, and worship God, especially in our times of gathered worship. Now, I want to pause and say that to invite you to rejoice in God is not to neglect the emotional range of life that you bring. Each of you is dealing with life circumstances right now. Some of you are happy. Some of the things are going well. But many of you are dealing with stuff, okay? You've got pain in your life, or there's pain in the lives around you, or pain in people you know, right? You've got relationships that are broken. Things are messed up in your kids' lives, your parents' lives. You're holding all this stuff in your hearts. When you show up at church, it's not about putting on a mask and saying, yes, everything's fine, but inside the tears are flowing, right? That's not it. Joy doesn't paste over pain. That's not what joy does. It puts pain in context by recalling the goodness of God. To rejoice in the Lord doesn't say, I have no pain in my life. It says, no, my pain is put in the context of a God who is good. That's why we rejoice in church. So, three blocks to the Spirit. we got the block, three kinks in the hose. Hands that are too full for God to put anything in them. Hands that are too full. Sin, a love of our own sin more than the love of God's presence. And then, of course, the spirit of bitterness and of grumbling. Now, there's probably more ways we could block the spirit, but those are the three that I wanted to focus on this morning because I think we can get rid of them and we can look at them together. Now, I've talked about asking. I've talked about removing blocks. And here's number three. That we get filled by the spirit by thirsting for the spirit. You get filled with the spirit by thirsting, by longing, by eagerly desiring to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Again, this is pretty straightforward. If you want to be filled, you have to want these things. You have to desire it. If you want to enjoy a date with your spouse, you actually have to want to be with your spouse, right? That sounds absurd to say, but it's true. Like if you actively poison the date by saying, you know, by being mean or by looking forward to other people, you're not going to have a good time. You want to enjoy the Holy Spirit? Look forward to time with the Holy Spirit. Invest in that. If you want to enjoy a feast, don't ruin the feast by gouging an entire package of Oreos 30 minutes before you sit down for the feast. Don't do it. Some of you maybe aren't filled with the Spirit because you're so full of trash food. You're full up of other stuff. I'm not condemning you. Sometimes trash food can be great. I like the Oreo. It's a good thing. But I try not to eat all of them before I have a feast because I want to enjoy the feast. I want to thirst for the good. I want these things in context. Now, in some ways, to thirst for the Spirit is just an expansion on the verses we read earlier from Luke 11. Ask, seek, knock. And we seek the Holy Spirit by thirsting for the Holy Spirit. But I've got a couple passages I want us to look at as well. Let's look at John chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. This is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. A really lovely passage about thirst, about satisfaction. There's some great theology of what the church is supposed to be doing in the midst of this passage. In John chapter 4, verse 13, here's what Jesus says to the woman. 
Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the well water we're looking at, will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Jesus presents her with an opportunity to receive this wonderful water, and she says, I want it. I want it. Of course I want it. Now, the next thing Jesus does is says, let's have a talk about your sin life. And they talk about her broken relationships right after this. Because preparatory to being filled, we've got some sorting out to do. It's almost a lovely illustration. So let's think even more about what it means to thirst. I preached a few weeks back on 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. I talked about love of the world. Let me read them for you again right now, but then refresh you about that. John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its desires. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, when I talked about that, I talked about loving, meaning being formed by the world and being invested in the world and being attached to the world. Your loves bind you in a certain way to the world. And John doesn't say hate the world. I think he's saying love God more than the world. Be attached to God. Be invested in God. Be formed by God because we become what we worship. And if you want to thirst for God's spirit, you need to be formed by that spirit, attached to that spirit, and invested in that spirit. And the best way for this to happen is to get a taste of that spirit and wonder what that's like. Again, Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. There's always an invitation to experience with God. It's not all in your head. It's supposed to, yeah, taste it. Try it out. Is it actually good water or is it not? And what do you think about this water? Do you like it? Do you want more of it? And once you've had the real deal, sometimes there's really no going back. Some of you have only had Taco Bell, and that's the only taco you've ever had in your life. I am so sorry. Have you ever had a proper taco truck taco? Oh! Some of you have never actually had a tamale. Yeah, next time you're driving in somewhere in the States and you see some guy with a pickup truck selling tamales out the back, whatever you're doing, stop. I don't care if you're driving your wife to the hospital to have a baby, stop. That tamale is the best tamale you will ever have in your life, and it will open your eyes and you'll say, wow, that's what it's supposed to taste like. The whole conduct of our life in the Spirit is predicated on us saying, wow, that's what he's like. And he puts everything else in context. Once you've had clean water, like out of the taps here in Vancouver, the Chicago has great water as well. You go to other cities and you look at the water and you, you drink this stuff? Really? It's been sitting in these pipes. It's brown. It's got a funky smell. Once you've had the clean, there's no going back to the dirty. Once you've had God's spirit, a real taste of it, there's very little going back to the old way of things because he's good. So that taste can change your life. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Beautiful psalm. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Eagerness. Eager desire to be filled and satisfied with what God offers us. So there you have it this morning. Three ways to be filled. Ask for the Spirit. 
Remove blocks to the Spirit, your sin, your full hands, your bitterness, and thirst for the Spirit. These are the ways to get filled. And today I want to try and put this to practice by asking the Spirit to fill us. And to do this, we're going to have a slightly extended time of worship today in a few minutes. We're going to come together, we're going to worship as a community, and while we worship, we're going to invite the Spirit. And our prayer ministers will be available to pray with you, but I invite you in those moments to just surrender your heart. You have a chance to rejoice in worship, to sing, to take some embodiment and be part of this stuff. I don't know why. For his own good purposes, the Holy Spirit likes music. He likes it. He thinks it's good. And so he likes to show up when we sing. All right, don't fight it, work with it. Okay? And this highlights all the more the importance of when we sing of having really good words and really good melodies. If it's just good words and the melodies are kind of trash, then like we're just feeding our heads some more and we're not reaching the heart. If the melodies are really good but the words aren't very good, then we're maybe not being filled with the spirit but with our own emotionalism, right? We're being subverted by things that sounds good but it's not good. And that's one of the hard tasks that Paul has for us is that he has to find good songs with good lyrics. It's a little bit more difficult than you might expect sometimes to bring these things together. So we have this extended time. I'm going to invite you in that time to have a time of, to invite the Spirit in the quiet of your heart. And maybe there's a simple prayer for this, which is while you stand and while you worship, sing. Um, but you can pick these three. Either you can, well, you should probably open your hands and say, Lord, I'm, I want to receive what you have. And just open yourself to the Lord's work. Um, he may convict you of something. And if he does that, I recommend repentance. (laughs) It's the right response. Don't repent because you've been bullied or because other stuff's going on. Repent because the Spirit is speaking to you. He's the one you're dealing with at the moment. It's between you and God by means of the Spirit. Um, And in these moments as we sing, have joy. Put your life in the context of a God who's good. And let's see what happens with his Spirit in our community.